Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to a special podcast to celebrate the World Hepatitis Day events held at the University of Birmingham. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientists.com. As many as 1 in 12 people worldwide suffer from chronic hepatitis infection, yet relatively few people are aware of the disease. World Hepatitis Day hopes to change this by increasing awareness and understanding of the disease and the research that's currently underway. In this special podcast, we'll be hearing from researcher Dr. Joe Grove, who recognised the need for greater awareness and organised Birmingham's World Hepatitis Day event. Professor David Adams will be explaining the clinical aspects of the disease, while Professor Jane McKeating will be taking us through the latest scientific research. But the World Hepatitis Day event was not just for scientists. Hepatitis patients also came along for the chance to speak to scientists and take a tour of the research facilities. And we'll hear from them later on. World Hepatitis Day was a global event dreamt up by the World Hepatitis Alliance, the WHA. In addition to the amazing events held at Birmingham University, the WHA saw support from former US President Bill Clinton and London Mayor Boris Johnson, who voiced his support via Twitter. Birmingham University's event saw researchers, students, members of parliament, patients and the media gather to hear about the importance of hepatitis research. As well as exploring the latest scientific advances, we heard about the clinical implications and the opportunities for young doctors and PhD students. Dr Joe Grove organised the event and joined me afterwards to explain exactly what World Hepatitis Day is about. World Hepatitis Day, like World AIDS Day, has the the general goal of raising awareness of viral hepatitis internationally. It's a little-known fact that 1 in 12 of the the world's population are are living with chronic hepatitis caused by either hepatitis B virus or hepatitis C virus. However, the vast majority of those individuals don't actually know they're infected. However, if people seek out treatment, they may be able to uh, have a a resolution of their illness so it's important that we raise awareness and also people should be aware about how you can come into contact with these diseases and maybe change uh, their lifestyle to avoid coming into contact one in 12 people seems awfully high i mean that's hundreds of millions of people surely yeah it's 500 million people worldwide Obviously, like a lot of diseases, for instance, like HIV, the distribution varies across the globe. In the case of hepatitis C virus, if you're looking at um, uh, America, around 1% to 2% of the population. Uh, In the UK, it's somewhere just below 1%. However, if you maybe go to areas uh, such as Egypt, 
where uh, due to poor sterilization during a vaccination campaign, you could look at a prevalence of 40 to 50 percent of the population in certain areas infected with hepatitis C. So what do people do to put themselves at risk of contracting hepatitis? Both hepatitis B and hepatitis C are predominantly blood-borne infections. So you come into contact through blood-to-blood contact. So before, for instance, hepatitis C, before there was a decent screening regime, the vast majority of infections in the West were due to blood transfusions. So people receiving blood transfusions before 1989 would possibly have come into contact with HCV. Now in the developed world, such as the UK, the majority of new infections occur via intravenous drug users. However, it is also possible to uh, catch the the disease via sharing your toothbrush or a razor or other drug paraphernalia with someone who may be infected. Hepatitis B, on the other hand, you can also catch it and have those modes of transmission. However, you can also, it's quite easy to catch hepatitis B via unprotected sex. So there are numerous routes of transmission not dissimilar to HIV. And what are you working on here in Birmingham? So specifically in Birmingham, we're looking at the way in which hepatitis C enters liver cells. And we do this using the recently developed cell culture system. Hepatitis C was discovered around 20 years ago, and it was only about four years ago that we've been able to grow the virus in the lab. In having this full replication system, we can study the entry of the virus into cells. So we've been using different compounds and also looking at the effect of antibodies on whether or not the virus can infect cells and also identifying and picking apart the receptors the virus uses to enter. Some of the most um, interesting work so far has been looking at the tricks that hepatitis C might use to evade the immune system. Uh, For instance, it's becoming apparent that HCV can pass from one cell directly to another, so from one infected cell to an uninfected cell feasibly within the liver. The advantage for a virus in doing this is that it does not come into contact with circulating antibodies. Antibodies can stick to viruses and neutralise them, make them ineffectual. So by transmitting directly between cells, the virus avoids this. Birmingham seems to be at the forefront of a lot of the hepatitis research. What's so special about Birmingham? We're in a, a very fortunate position here to have some excellent scientists and clinicians and uh, a leading a liver unit carries out um, hundreds of transplants a year uh, for a lot of HCV and HBV patients with severe disease. A transplantation is their only option. So we have a lot of elements converging here in Birmingham. So it allows us to uh, feed a basic scientific research into clinical results for patients. We also here have a, a dedicated clinical research facility. And today's been a wonderful way to show it all off. Yeah, it's been great. I think one of the most valuable elements really is having representatives from the patient community come along. Uh, I think it's important that there's a communication between the different elements of viral hepatitis support within the UK. Certainly we have the science going on. We have the clinical research and and treatment. There's also groups doing social work, essentially, for for people infected with HCV, like the Hepatitis C Trust. The work they do offers uh, patient support. And obviously there's an increasingly large uh, patient community. I think it's good to foster uh, relationships between these. And this today has been a, a great opportunity to do that. That was Dr Joe Grove explaining why he thought a World Hepatitis Day event was important and why Birmingham University was ideally suited. 
As part of forging relationships between the diverse groups that were attending the event, Dr Grove took us on a tour of the labs, showing us both the scientific and clinical research settings. This was a great opportunity to really understand the research in its proper context and a view behind closed doors for the hepatitis patients who had come along. We'll be hearing more from some of the patients shortly, but first I spoke to Professor David Adams. David is a medical doctor as well as a professor of hepatology and so ideally suited to explain how the scientific research impacts on clinical applications. David first explained the difference between the different kinds of hepatitis. There are four different types of hepatitis that we commonly see called A, B, C and E. D is a rare virus which is an obligate parasite of B. But to talk about the four main ones, A and E are similar in that they are both transmitted via the oral route. So they are particularly at risk where you've got poor quality sanitation. And both of those viruses predominantly cause acute infection which resolves without long-term sequelae. A very small proportion of patients may unfortunately develop a really severe hepatitis and go into liver failure, but the majority of patients recover and don't have any chronic persistent infection. And that really sets those two viruses apart from hepatitis B and C, which can both be associated with chronic infection. Hepatitis B worldwide is a huge problem. In countries where it's endemic, that is where the virus is always present in a high proportion of the population. It tends to be contracted by children in the neonatal period and those patients tend to develop long-term persistent infection without a lot of liver damage but later on in life that can cause a slow progression to chronic hepatitis and cirrhosis and liver cancer so it's one of the main causes of cancer in the developing world. In the western developed world hepatitis B is more usually contracted as an acute illness in adults, usually via sexual transmission, where it can present with an acute hepatitis that resolves, but in a proportion of patients, probably 20 or 30%, the virus persists, and those patients become chronically infected and will need long-term follow-up and possibly treatment to prevent them going on to develop cirrhosis and liver cancer. Hepatitis C is a different type of virus to hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is a DNA virus, whereas hepatitis C is an RNA virus. It's also contracted via the breaking of a body barrier, such as a mucosal membrane or particularly blood, and it's usually contracted uh, from contaminated blood products, either by treatment in the developing world with unclean needles or intravenous drug use in the developed world. And the problem with hepatitis C is, is that probably in about 80% of patients who are infected, they will not get rid of the virus. And they may not even know they've been infected. The acute illness is often well, usually very mild, but 80% will go on to develop chronic infection. And of those 80%, a proportion, probably 20 to 30% over a long period of time, will go on to develop scarring, cirrhosis, liver failure and liver cancer. So hepatitis leads to liver damage, which in turn can lead to things like liver cancer. What are our options for treating it once the damage is there? Well, once the damage has been done and the patient has got uh, cirrhosis and uh, end-stage liver disease, either in the form of liver failure or, as you say, the development of liver cancer, then we don't really have any medical options. And the only option is liver transplantation. There are several problems with liver transplantation, one being that there is a shortage of donors 
So there's a waiting time and there aren't enough donors for the number of recipients we would like to transplant. The second problem is that a transplant doesn't unfortunately get rid of the virus because the virus seems to hide in other sites in the body. Uh, we're not quite sure where, but almost invariably after the transplant the new liver gets reinfected with the virus. So recurrent infection and recurrent hepatitis and disease is a real problem and many of these patients will end up needing to be re-transplanted because the disease has, has recurred. As far as liver cancer is concerned, transplantation is a problem because we know that we can only successfully transplant somebody with liver cancer if we catch the cancer early enough. Once it's grown beyond a few centimetres in diameter, we know from experience that after the transplant, the, the cancer will rapidly come back. So it's very important that patients with cirrhosis with end-stage liver disease are screened. We have blood tests and ultrasound scans that we can do to screen for liver cancer. And if we pick it up in early stage, then get them, if appropriate, onto a transplant waiting list as soon as possible so we can transplant them before the cancer has, has spread too far. But it's going to be important in the future to combine transplantation with drugs that prevent the replication of the virus and the reinfection of the liver with the virus. And this has been very effectively done nowadays in hepatitis B, so that hepatitis B infection was a contraindication to liver transplantation because the patients all got reinfected and died. Now, actually, with antiviral therapies, which are very effective, it's one of the best indications for liver transplantation. So hopefully we'll be saying this about hepatitis C infection in the future. So what are our current treatment options? So the current treatments are based around uh, interferon, which is a naturally occurring antiviral factor produced by the patient's own body when infected by a virus, and particularly a form of interferon called pegylated interferon, which just means it's linked to a chemical which makes it last longer in the body than it would otherwise. And that's given by injection, and that's combined with a drug called ribavirin, which has some weak antiviral properties but seems to work very well in combination with interferon. So those are the current standard treatments. Um, there are a range of new treatments coming into clinical trials at the moment, and we hope these will, will come into clinical practice in the future, but our mainstay at the moment is interferon and ribavirin. Interferon works by encouraging the body's own defences to kill off infected cells. What are the side effects? The side effects are, are, are really pretty much that it makes you feel like you've got flu because when you get flu, it's interferon that's released. So patients can feel, um, can get headaches and feel agitated. One particular side effect can be really quite profound depression. Many people, when they get a bad viral infection, such as influenza, do feel profoundly depressed before, during and after the infection. So... Uh, some patients just can't cope with, with interferon because of the effect it has on their mental well-being. The side effects tend to go off with time and they, and they can be treated, but they are um, not inconsiderable and some patients just can't tolerate them and have to stop treatment early. So killing off infected cells with interferon seems a bit like taking a hammer to the problem. Are there no more subtle ways around it? Can we stop the virus replicating or can we stop it from getting into cells in the first place? Well, that's the aim of the, the new generation of, of drugs, to be much more specific and to tackle different parts of the hepatitis C machinery that blocks its ability to reproduce or 
even, as you've mentioned, even better than that, blocks its ability to actually get into the cells. And those drugs are potentially very exciting, and some of the early trials look very promising. But as with all antiviral drugs, one of the concerns is always that the virus will become, will mutate and become resistant to, to these agents. So we need to look out for that very, very carefully. And at the moment, none of these drugs are licensed for routine use. They're still all at the trial stage. But I think the next few years is going to be an exciting time for new therapies. That was Professor David Adams, who's confident that we'll see developments in hepatitis therapies in the next few years. Any new therapies will ultimately descend from a greater understanding of the science of hepatitis. So I met Professor Jane McKeating, who's head of the Hepatitis C Virus Research Group at Birmingham University. Her lab has been responsible for some groundbreaking hepatitis C discoveries, although the disease itself was only identified relatively recently. So hepatitis C was first discovered um, back 20 years ago by Michael Houghton and his colleagues at Chiron. And since it was first discovered, how much have we found out about it? My gosh, a lot. (laughs) Over the last 20 years, there have been huge, really big jumps. I I would say this doesn't happen very often, but in the hep C field, there has been jumps over the last 20 years from discovering the viral genome to then showing that that virus was capable of actually infecting animals and causing hepatitis. Then was the ability to grow the virus in the laboratory, and that immediately led to the development of antiviral, new antiviral therapeutics. So I think, really, I mean, it's a textbook of showing how good basic science can lead to really big, big strides forward in understanding a human disease. And through the understanding that we've developed, we've already been able to wipe out hepatitis C from blood transfusions, but... We still don't have a working vaccine or a treatment that we know will definitely wipe it out. How far away do you think these might be? Let's say, I mean, currently the accepted therapy is an interferon ribavirin combination. Now, in some viral genotypes, that's quite a good therapy, and we're getting about a 70% response rate. And in fact, when we say response rate, those individuals are now clinically cured We can't detect the virus in the blood anymore. We can't detect it in the liver. We would hope that within the next five years that we will see a whole battery of new therapeutics coming online will be routinely used targeting the viral enzymes. And that I think we will envisage that in five years' time we will start to be at a stage where we are with HIV, in that you will give tailored drug therapies so that you want to give the best possible combination of therapeutics to an individual that responds to the virus they're infected with. That's maybe more in the 10-year window, but certainly there will be a real change over the next five years. So how does it initially get into the liver? We envisage that it will be bloodborne and that most things naturally will migrate to the liver. Firstly, it will come into contact with the sinusoidal endothelial cells. Now, they are interesting. They express a number of the receptors which the virus, we think, engages, but they're not um, permissive to viral infection. 
And so we think that they may somehow be important for actually um, maybe antigen uptake, that they may be important for tolerizing um, the immune responses that may be initiated in the liver. We then get movement of the virus into the hepatocytes. That's the primary cell type within the liver where the virus is replicating. And at the moment, we know there are four molecules that we believe are important. And the first two molecules were um, CD81 and scavenger receptor B1, which is important for cholesterol metabolism. Now, both of those molecules, I think we could safely say, could be classified as receptors in that they interact with the virus. We then have two other molecules, cloudin-1 and occludin, which are members of the tight junction protein family which so far may actually be somehow a facilitator of entry and that they're required, but they may not actually interact with the virus directly. So we have these four molecules, which interestingly are expressed in other places of the body, but it's how these four molecules work in a very unique way to the patocyte that we're currently trying to understand is how that, that's actually taking it into the virus. And we are looking for antibodies and small receptor mimics that actually can target each of these molecules and therefore prevent entry. And how does it get from one liver cell to the next one? Do we have to go via the blood again? That's a good question. It's something that we're working on quite actively at the moment. It looks now that there are two pathways. Particle assembly is essential, and you can get release from one liver cell, and you can then get reinfection through the sort of cell-free particle route, which is the more traditional way. And that's dependent on all the receptors I've just described. Or the more recent data we're finding is that the virus seems to be able to move through cell-cell junctions and therefore is resistant to complement and antibodies that you'll find in the peripheral blood. Many different viruses are also very good at hiding from the immune system. Does hepatitis do the same sort of thing? Yeah, we think so. We published uh, earlier this year that hepatitis C virus can actually um, internalize into B cells. And we've also documented it going into T cells, very much akin to what's been published for the HIV, that you can actually move around the body and hijack a B cell. And that B cell doesn't support the replication of the virus, but it can deliver it to hepatocyte. The fact that I said earlier that the virus actually utilizes tight junction proteins, these proteins are actually really important for maintaining epithelial cell barrier function. And the hepatocytes in the liver form very tight barriers. And what we find is that when they become infected, that barrier breaks down. And you get a reorganization and localization of tight junction proteins, which interestingly then allows lymphocytes to get into areas of the liver where the hepatocytes are, which we would perceive may actually promote the fact that the virus is is actually um, internalizing into a B cell for the B cell then to deliver that virus to a hepatocyte. So it's quite a neat trick. (laughs) So the virus infects a cell and then not only primes that cell to enable it to pass viruses to neighboring cells of the same type, but also actually encourages immune system components in that it can then infect to use as, as a vehicle. Yeah, that's, that's pretty new information. I mean, yeah, that's what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. We don't know as yet, could that be a route at which you can actually infect host to host as well? 
but we know it's a blood-borne virus, whether the blood is actually within a cell or in a cell-free form, and whether the being within a B cell actually maintains the virus half-life is an interesting uh, thought, and we're, we're literally doing those experiments at the moment. You've mentioned HIV, which obviously has had an enormous outpouring of resources and a great deal of study. Mm. Can we learn from the research that's gone into HIV ways to avoid the resistance that we've seen in HIV? I trained as a HIV. This is where I did my PhD in studies. So I think there's a huge amount we can learn from HIV. We certainly can see it's an RNA virus, so we immediately, on multi-drug therapy, we will see resistance patterns. And we know we're going to see resistance patterns in, in hep C treatments. So I think it's set the stage. We know we're going to have to go in with combination therapy, and HIV is leading the way on tailored therapies. So I think there's much we can learn, and we mustn't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's the next step for you and your team here at Birmingham? The next step, we're really still trying to understand the viral entry process. Why does the virus only really infect the hepatocyte? And importantly, how we can design studies to understand the pathology. How does the virus get into the liver? But more importantly, is the virus itself causing damage to the liver or is it the immune infiltration that is actually causing the damage? Now, classically for many years hepatitis is perceived to be something the damage is driven by the immune system. But that was before we actually had a virus in the lab that we could grow. And a virologist can't really do very much in the lab until they have a virus. So now that we have one, we're beginning to see that the virus is contributing to the pathology also. So I think we really want to understand those those interactions and how the virus can modulate the lymphocyte recruitment and movement into the liver. So as we discover more about the hep C virus, we're understanding how it evades and takes advantage of our immune system. Although we've only had 20 years to study the virus, the science has come on in leaps and bounds, and many potential routes for clinical development lie ahead of us. That was Professor Jane McKeating. The scientific developments by Professor McKeating's team don't just help us with treating the disease. The more we understand the virus, the less fear we hold. This is especially true for those that suffer from the disease. So I spoke to Wendy and Jules to find out what brought them to the World Hepatitis Day event. Well, um, I had hepatitis C for approximately about 20 years. I had treatment five years ago and I've been clean ever since, you know, clear of the virus, should I say. And I have a lot to do with Hep C Trust. I go to conferences, I've helped set up a Hep C support group. And um, they just invited me along today. So I thought it would be a really good opportunity to see how the other side works, really, and uh, what progress there is and what new things that are going to come about to help people with the virus. We've heard today that in the course of the last 20 years, there's been some very dramatic leaps forward in understanding the science of hep C. Mm. As someone who actually suffers from the virus, do you appreciate being told all of the nitty-gritty? Is it helpful to you to know some of this yeah, deep I, science? I think so. I think, I, when, like, 20 years ago, when I was first diagnosed, they phoned me up and said that I needed to come to the liver unit because I had this hepatitis C virus. I phoned my dad and I told him, and he says, what is this? I think it's something to do with AIDS. 
that was my first sort of thought. For the first sort of three years, I was back and forth from the liver unit. And like I said, 20 years ago, they didn't really tell you a lot. You know, I didn't understand what it was, anything about it. So I walked away and forgot about it, basically, because I didn't know the implications of it. So for like five, six, seven years, I walked around forgetting that I'd got this virus because I didn't know nothing about it. Maybe it's, I didn't want to know, I don't know, but I don't think enough was said to me for me to understand. They may have told me, but on my first appointment, I hadn't got a clue what they were on about. So I think people really need to know because it gives them more of an understanding and the seriousness of it and the implications of having it long-term. I think the media are getting better with it now, but I, I still don't think it's enough to let people know how serious it is. So you would support World Hepatitis Day from both a personal and a professional meeting? Absolutely. I work for a drug service. We have approximately about 800 clients. We've recognised that 25% of those have got the hepatitis C virus and that we haven't even tested all of them. It's just so scary because the amount of clients that are walking about that don't know that they've got it, that could be infecting other people that haven't got it. And it's just really scary and I just don't think they understand the majority of the ones you talk to, they say, oh, that's, that's that thing that kills you, isn't it? Well, no, not necessarily, but left untreated, it will really have a detrimental effect on your, your health in the long term. They just don't really understand. And having just had a tour of the research facilities here, do you think you'd encourage more people, both healthy and people who do have hepatitis, to actually get involved in the research? Yeah, definitely, because I think, you know, it's... It's just about raising the awareness on, on my point and coming to places like this and having tours and, and speaking to directors, clinical directors and research students. It gives more people an insight and I'm excited now because I know that there's more research getting done and they're coming better treatments for people, you know, and, and if they have better treatments for people, it's more success because at the moment a lot of people are failing the treatment because of the side effects because they just can't manage it. So if we can make that easier for people, then more people can get treated. I mean, we can't treat 50% of our clients that I work with because of their chaotic lifestyles, the, the support network they don't have and the vulnerability. We could not even contemplate putting them on treatment because they just, they'd fail because of the extent of the side effects that it has on people, you know, and that we need to sort of be looking at making it easy for people to have treatment. Wendy's position, not only a former patient but actively working with hepatitis patients in the community, highlights one of the benefits of World Hepatitis Day. It's a unique opportunity for researchers and clinicians to communicate with patients, and that means that everyone can benefit. At the end of the event, Jules regarded the researchers as the unsung heroes of hepatitis treatment, but I found out what had attracted him to the event in the first place. For more awareness about hepatitis C and to see what goes on on the other side, which I found very interesting, because I think the research people are sort of the unsung heroes, shall we say. And you actually suffer from hepatitis C. How long have you been suffering? 25 years. 26 years. <laughs> Not really sure. And in that time, as we've seen today, there have been some huge advances, but still relatively little is known. It's great that we have opportunities like this. Do you think more people 
should find out about the clinical research and the pure science behind it? I think so, yeah, because then people aren't so scared of what's going down because a lot of people are ignorant, shall we say, about hepatitis C and the causes and the, the facts and people think you can catch it by holding hands with somebody who's got it but that's not the case and this sort of thing brings awareness from both sides and obviously it's very much in in your interest as well as in the public's interest that we find new treatments and new cures oh yeah well without a cure i'd be dead if you get it you don't get treated somewhere along the line you're going to die and that's as easy as so, how have you been treated for hepatitis? Uh, I've had liver biopsies. I've had the early stage interferon when it was first under development. I had to give myself three injections a week, loads of tablets, and that wasn't very nice. That failed. Then, a few years later, I took a second course of interferon for 18 months, which was pegulated, so that meant I had to give one injection a week. That wasn't quite so bad, but still not pleasant. And I've got 20 weeks left now of my third course of interferon. So far, so good. But you can you can have nothing in your body. And then all of a sudden the treatment stops and it's back. And then they'll give you something else. But you just got to keep trying and trying. It's just, you've got to be a pretty clean liver. Try and keep yourself focused. That's all you can do, isn't it? And... It's also very important that people get tested. Uh, as you said, there's a lot of stigma. There's even stigma about having a test. Well, if they've ever had tattoos, shared a needle, anything like that, you should have a test because you'd never know. You could be walking around thinking you're happy as Barry, sound as a pound, but unbeknown to you, you've got this virus inside your body that won't really do anything for 10, 15, 20 years, and then it'll hit you like a ton of bricks. And in that time, not only are you becoming more ill, but also you're quite likely to be passing it on. Well, this is the one. If, you, if you're aware yourself, say you're in a, perhaps an intravenous drug-taking clique and you've got it, all your friends will have it and nobody will know. It's just an ignorance thing, isn't it? Do you think the, the fear of the treatment and its side effects is something that keeps people from being tested? Perhaps, but I don't think people realise about the treatments. I think the, the initial stages, a liver biopsy, that sounds very scary to a lot of people, you know. So they won't even go there. But once you've had the liver biopsy, that's the, that's the easy bit, shall we say. <laughs> the rest, the treatment's not pleasant, but, you know, you've just got to grin and bear it. Because, like I say, it's either take it or don't take it, live or die. So where'd you go? So what do you think is, is going to be the future, both from your perspective as someone looking for ways to control and treat hepatitis, but also what do you think, based on what you've seen today, is likely to be the next step? Well, I think the next step's going to be amazing. The technology's coming on in leaps and bounds. The researchers, they're getting there. What I've seen today has shown to me that they're, they're making massive leaps and advances in this, the discovery of this, this virus you know, and how to combat it, which is, it's very tricky. It's a cuckoo in the nest, isn't it? You know what I mean? And that cuckoo in the nest may yet be flushed out. That's all we have for this special podcast from World Hepatitis Day at Birmingham University. If you want to know more about hepatitis, then please visit the World Hepatitis Day website at ami12.org. If you want to know more about the Hepatitis C Trust, visit them at hepctrust.org. 
This podcast was supported by the Medical Research Council, the Hep C Trust, and Birmingham University, and was produced by me, Ben Valsler, from thenakedscientists.com. We hope to see you at World Hepatitis Day 2010. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.